I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the journey to transformation. Yay. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to our seasoned listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Right. What are we talking about today? So today we're talking about whose knowledge counts. So we're unpacking knowledge in the nonprofit sector, looking at whose knowledge is used in our work, whose knowledge is prioritized, really getting to grips with what we mean by knowledge as well. So Tia, why are we talking about this today? Well, this is really motivated by the fact that we are doing a project on knowledge to look at knowledge, sources of knowledge, what gets brought into the thinking and the decision making. And so we decided that we would do a little podcast because it's top of mind at the moment. So that's why we're here. It's really important to have a discussion on knowledge in terms of organizational transformation, right? There has to be an assessment of knowledge, who's making decisions about knowledge and evidence in order to transform. And so we're seeing that in the project that we're working on and we're seeing it a lot in discussions across the sector at the moment. Well, not just at the moment. We draw on, we require knowledge for our decision making. So anytime we decide what a program is going to look like, how it's going to be designed, how it's going to be evaluated, knowledge is used as data points, as you know, ways that we make decisions and are driven by the things that come out of knowledge. So I think it's a really useful conversation and a useful stopping point to ask, where the fuck are you getting your knowledge from? Absolutely. And it's kind of crazy that we're having this discussion now, that this project is now. I mean, why wasn't it 10 years ago? Yeah, it feels really radical. Right. Like, why (laughs) does this feel like radical? And why is everyone like, wow, that sounds really interesting. We're just looking at power, knowledge and decision making. Like, (laughs) surely we should have been doing that 20 odd years ago. And maybe people were. Maybe I just don't know that. Or maybe it's just not in the public space. So there's always that. But as you rightly say, the radical reaction to what we're doing is surprising. Yeah, it's a bit crazy when we say, when people are like, well, you know, what project are you working on at the moment? And we describe the project and people are like, oh, that just, wow, you're surfacing loads of stuff. And I think the main thing for me that I'm like, I'm discovering myself is that it's weird that we haven't had this conversation. It's weird that this is even a project that somebody puts into the space as opposed to a project that's ongoing, that's consistent, that's considered. I find it a bit odd. I mean, it's almost like we've got to a point where there's so much information out there and there's so much knowledge accumulated that everyone's suddenly like, oh, maybe we need to look at this stuff we've put in the files on the internet. Maybe we actually need to analyze the thousands of reports or evidence that we've gathered and stored in a, you know, a cloud somewhere. So maybe Never to be heard from again. <laughs> right. Actually, maybe suddenly people's cloud storage has got a bit stuck and they're like, we what do we need to get rid of? We don't want to pay for the extra terabytes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So maybe we ought to assess what's here. <laughs> Have we just been brought in by some information management? Maybe we're seriously IT consultants. <laughs> oh, the guys. Uh, that's a good, that's a catfish. That is a catfish. That's a catfish. For listeners who haven't heard our other episode, we did one recently on the time we got catfished. So please do go and listen. <laughs> Indeed. Should we jump in? Definitely. Cool. What's knowledge? 
Oh, wow. We always start big here. We always start with a really big question. Can we like incrementally get to the point? I don't do incremental. Incremental change isn't for me. <laughs> Fine. So shall I read the Oxford Dictionary <laughs> definition? <laughs> That's what I'm just going to come out and see. Yeah, yeah. I am actually, you know. So, I mean, what we want to do is give people factual information. Absolutely. So I think it's good. Just double check. I think it's fine. So the Oxford Dictionary definition of knowledge is facts, information and skills acquired through experience or education, the theoretical or practical understanding of a subject. I hate that it's theoretical or practical because in my mind, what I think knowledge is, is the experiential piece of it. But then you get into a question of like how much experiential knowledge can one acquire about all of the things in the world. So I do appreciate the fact that there needs to be a kind of theoretical component to it. In our work, I feel like what it does is it positions people with advanced degrees to be, we don't balance that enough, I guess is what I'm saying. I understand why it's included. I just feel like the theoretical gets more value than the practical. Yeah. And that I'm not the biggest fan of. I agree. And I think often the theory-based angle is prioritized and is in large NGOs or large non-governmental organizations is the piece that people perhaps go to first or have gone to first. And I think in this definition too, and we'll perhaps come on to this, the education and experience piece side by side is kind of interesting in terms of whose knowledge counts, you know, the extent to which education is prioritized as you rightly what I like about what you've just said is the side by side piece. And I don't think that that's what we do. I think what we do in not for profits, particularly international big whales, is we put one on top of the other. Mm, we're very good at doing that. Oh, we're fantastic at it. <laughs> <laughs> we're very fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> we're very good at prioritizing education over experience. And I think that's. You know, for me, that feels hugely problematic because everything that you do, every decision that gets made is made through the lens of your theoretical knowledge, as opposed to putting as the primary source of your decision making, the knowledge and experience and perceptions of rights holders. What if a theory was created by a rights holder? That would be fantastic. <laughs> then would we prioritize the theories? No, you, you wouldn't prioritize it. You put them side, but you said it right the first time. I don't know why you're like messing around with it now. You put them side by side. You don't privilege one over the other because that's where I think the problem is. We're consultants. We get paid to go in and extract people's information, extract people's knowledge, whether it's based on theory, whether it's tacit knowledge. We get paid to take what's in people's heads, synthesize it through our lens the lens of our experience, the lens of our education, and then spit it back to somebody else. Mm. I don't want to talk us out of a job, <laughs> but cut out the middle person. <laughs> right. And more often than not, it's a reframing of knowledge in a way that the organization wants it to be seen in, right? Like it's regurgitating different kinds of knowledge, maybe bringing it together in a different way, adding our objectivity and I'm using quotes because <laughs> if you can't I'm not see. sure we do have any objectivity <laughs> and then reformatting it in a way that big organizations can understand. So are we the problem? Maybe <laughs> as the middle person, as you rightly said, we are reframing knowledge in a way that maybe is not necessary. I do think that in our approach, because we 
have a power sensitive approach. And I think we are mindful of these things because we have these conversations about the work that we do and where we situate and how we as consultants, as individuals drive the nonprofit machine in ways that are uncomfortable and awkward and situate our power in ways it's just we don't enjoy. <laughs> and I do think that probably we are part of the problem. Okay. It's good to know. Minimal work for us. <laughs> but it's the consumption, right? Like it's the appetite. The demand is to have people's knowledge. You said it exactly right. Is to have knowledge brought in in such a way that the people who hire us, donors, can understand it. Mm. So it's what it's in the English language. It's in a professionally branded document. It's available in at best two other languages. It's sent via email. At, at best. <laughs> at, but come on. Come so, on. We've done the meta analysis. We know. <laughs> so then we're coming a little bit on to how the format of knowledge that people are familiar with and comfortable with. Right. right? My segue. And I think then that is it feeds into us being part of the problem because we reformatting it in the ways that people are familiar with, are comfortable with, and is in a very dominant language that excludes nuances in other people's knowledge. And, you know, we always kind of see everything in English, we write everything in English, and we kind of neglect the fact that there's so much nuance in languages that are lost. Yeah. And there is then so much knowledge that's lost because you're translating it. And then what happens is we we take it, we reformat it, and then we don't give it back or we give it back to them in the branded professional document, which again, in of itself is not useful. And it's a hard sell, right? We, Lauren and I had an interview the other day and I was really trying to shake them off of the idea of a like a long form report the consultancy was around a learning piece. I was like, okay, well, you know, how much scope is there to do something that's different? Because, you know, a 25 page report is going to get stuck on the digital shelf. It's going to get reviewed by a handful of people. People will come and we'll do a presentation of key findings and I'll, like, I'll do a little webinar or whatever, but it's going to sit up there. And how much utility is that? If you really want people to learn, you have to activate the ways in which people individual people learn. I think is a reasonable ask. Can we find another way? What is the objective? We want to learn from what it is that you're investigating and that you're researching. Then let's stop putting things in 25, 50 page reports and maybe somebody reads the executive summary. Like we know that that's how some people learn. It's not how everybody learns and it's not how people learn when they're in like complex environments and they've got a mountain of things that are happening, but it was a hard sell. Why is everybody so attached to the idea that learning is only legitimate if you've put it in a 25, 50 page report written in English that's just all text? Maybe they get excited about a couple of tables, but why is it only legitimate if it's that? Why isn't it legitimate if it's storytelling or pictures, a photo collage? Why? I hate it. Why? Lauren, answer. 
<laughs> I don't know if there is an answer. <laughs> I think it's a lot rooted in the familiarity of having an end product that you can share with a donor and is comparative. It's going to be a radical shift when a donor says, we're funding this project for an organisation and actually we're happy with, you know, three songs, three animations and an interactive PowerPoint presentation or a WhatsApp voice note that's, you know, a series 10 minutes long each. I don't know, like it's going to be a really <laughs> Radical. These are all things we do, by the way. So, you know, <laughs> if you need those things, if you think outside the box, uh, give us a call. Follow us at JRNY Podcast. <laughs> but it's going to be, again, okay, this word radical is appearing in this, but it is going to be a radical <laughs> shift when a donor says, you know what, we're okay with this. And so, you know, the power of knowledge comes back to maybe the whole thing is situated in a, where a donor is sitting and how a donor sets the landscape. And therefore, everyone else has molded around it. And unfortunately, to unmold that is going to take quite a big shift. And this is obviously part of what we're talking about. Like, how do we get there? So to all of the donors listening, cut it out. But then is it the role of the middle person and the INGOs, the the non-governmental organizations of the world to lobby donors? Lauren, get real. (laughs) Get real. Talk to me about an INGO. Who's going to lobby a donor for something like this? Tell me. They'll be like, no, cool. You want a log frame? Great. Sure. Nobody wants to do them. Nobody's ever fully understood how to do a log frame in the history of log frames. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we don't get funded by like the EU who very commonly use (laughs) log frames. So I don't care. Come at me. So maybe then it's like... A demand driven or a set like piece here in terms of a collective power, you know, many people demanding that this changes, many INGOs coming together, many people in civil society being like, do not want to send you 20 log frames this month. Thank you very much. Are we leading the movement? Are we at the (laughs) forefront of the movement? Are we leading the charge for INGOs (laughs) to confront and challenge the system that has been framed by the money givers in terms of whose knowledge they feel is valuable. They're the consumers, right? Like at the end of the day, they're the consumers. I don't know why that's the structure that anybody wants. I don't think that it is at the end of the day. I don't think that anybody believes that they are the ones that are the primary consumers of these things, of these knowledge products, of this sharing of evaluations, assessments, reviews, whatever. I don't think anybody really wants to be in that position in a perfect sunny world. They think, oh, yes, it's our rights holders who, you know, they're they're the ones and we're centering them. But no, you create products that are designed to appeal to donors. You position it for donors. When we do stakeholder analysis for every project we work on, who's the like high influence stakeholder? It's a donor. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sort of also thinking, gosh, we're never going to get any work with INGOs ever again, because I'm about to say, (laughs) maybe they should be cut out because maybe what's happening here is a donor needs to be much closer to rights holders to understand that space. And maybe NGOs are doing a really crap job of saying, actually, this is what rights holders want. And so what we need is a donor to say, oh, I don't care about what you've got to say X person in London, actually, can you give me or share with me something that the rights holders are saying? And I don't want that to be translated through your branded language. I want to see what's being said outside of London and New York. Do I want FCDO to be like engaging directly with 
rights holders. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> for all all the FCDO folks listening. Okay, we've just laid about everybody in this podcast. So yeah, fun. I mean, I don't want to drag anybody, but I also feel like there's just room for improvement. And I, and, you know, that's the benefit. That's why we started this podcast. We wanted to be able to like lightheartedly talk a bit of shit about people and see if it makes them change. Yeah. Because we're all thinking it. No, absolutely. <laughs> but, but you're also right that, that, you know, bringing donors closer to civil society in other countries outside of their own selves add another bunch of power dynamics and another set of complications. So, and this kind of reminds me a little bit of some conversations we've been having around in terms of shifting power and shifting power with knowledge is that you can't expect partners you've worked with or rights holders to suddenly be able to operate in a space that wasn't designed for them originally. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to hands off, you have the power, you can now be the knowledge producers, then there's a real problematic issue there in terms of just letting go and letting them sail into a space that wasn't for them or wasn't designed for them in the first place without giving them tools or at least some guidance as to what the hell all this complicated language is. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think that's, I hate you right now. Why? Because that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> We've been talking for 20 minutes and you've opened up a whole nother conversation. This is the conversation around like gross word alert localization and localization is basically delegation by another name. I throw you out into this universe all under the guise of me being, you know, the benevolent savior. I give you a bit of power, but what do you do with the risk? What do you do with all of the additional burden that an organization or a community wasn't ready for? You just drop a ton of shit on top of them. Obviously I'm generalizing, but this is in fairness, what I've seen and how I have heard and understood people to talk about it and to think about it. And these are the concerns that people are raising. Okay, so let's bring it back, to knowledge. back to knowledge. <laughs> I mean, these things are somewhat interconnected and I think that's the point. Let's go back to a question. What barriers to the prioritization of knowledge outside of an INGI? What are the barriers? What are the blockages? Why are people not prioritizing other knowledge outside of I don't know, white experts dropping in and academic experts. Me. Um, <laughs> why is there a sense that the Global North are the knowledge producers? Knowledge producers and knowledge havers. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like the only reason I'm doing a PhD is so that I can like legitimize my thoughts. And I'm fully aware of the system that I'm operating in and what that means. I'm just deciding to use it for my own personal gain. I'm brown. I'm going to do what I want. I've earned it. But I think the barriers are that we as an industry, nonprofit industry, it's an industry, it's a business, there's brands. I've said it before. I'll say it till I die. We aren't agile enough to deal with the ways in which plurality exists. We can only deal with information when it's synthesized in a way that we understand. You said it before. We need to communicate. Our job as consultants is to communicate in a way that donors and INGOs understand. They only understand a particular language. There's not enough agility. There's not enough light footedness to be able to incorporate the ways multiple languages, dialects, different personalities, different styles communicate the needs that they have. We're not good at that. And so I think that's one of the biggest blockages is us, our own ability to comprehend plurality and the ways in which people 
may need to communicate with us. And I think we do a lot of shit around like, oh, you know, we're making it like inclusive and accessible and we're doing this, and we're doing this, and we're doing this. But it's still so narrow. All it does is look at the ways in which a person may be able to access something, not necessarily in the ways that they might be able to communicate opinions, beliefs, thoughts, and then get into a whole nother conversation about the power dynamics that exist when that person needs to communicate thoughts, feelings, and opinions about you. We're just not agile enough for it. We're not good at that. If Lauren drops into my neighborhood and it's just like, cool, I want you to do this like survey. And that's not actually how I can communicate with you. I can't communicate the complexity of my life. I can't consolidate my experiences, particularly in like complex environments where things change rapidly where people's lives are changing and shifting and it's complicated. It's complicated for me as a person who doesn't live in conflict, who has a very easy, privileged life. You're asking me to communicate about something really complex in a way that you can digest, not in a way that I can be open and to share. And I think that that's the dynamic that we set up. And within that is automatically a power structure that it's not fair. And if we think that we're going to get usable information, usable data to be able to be like, you know, data-driven decision makers and evidence-based programming. If we're going to do that, we don't need to have people speaking in a language that we can understand. We need to be communicating with people in a way that gives them space to communicate what they want to share with us. I won't hear anything else. Well, I mean, (laughs) if that's all there is, why are we not doing it? (laughs) Let me add another layer to that. I have been that white research that's dropped into a place and interviewed people and attempted to be curious about things and attempted to ask people what their needs are. And I definitely wasn't needed. I definitely brought a power structure to those conversations. People definitely saw me as the white woman coming from the place with money. So many power structures in that. There just has to be an acknowledgement that, as you rightly say, there are different ways to do that, different forms that people want to share their stories, their perceptions, their feelings, and outside of a space that a white woman is necessary. In addition to that, we tend to use researchers as vessels to get information rather than people who also are part of the system and part of the context and also have their own power dynamics in the communities they're visiting. And this is something I noticed, you know, many years ago and in my monitoring and evaluation career is we don't have a sense of the people we're working with in the country also have something to share with us. And we tend to work with enumerators and researchers. They go out, collect information, give it back to us. And we totally neglect an intermediary piece where They're equal to us as analysts, as people who are asking information, as people who are part of your research process. And I've seen that so many times. I think it's such a negated knowledge space. It's a space of knowledge that we just completely ignore. And as you were speaking about the intersectional piece around knowledge and that we don't have the agility, we don't have the agility to understand the power dynamics in those structures and data collection structures. It's not just us. I mean, we're assessing our own power, but there's power everywhere in front of us relationships to each other, different community groups, who you've decided to work with as a consultant in a particular country. There's a power decision in that choice and that in itself could have some ramifications or impact. 
How is your researcher viewed when they go to the community? How does the community view them? How do they feel conducting research for a large organization in a particular area and community? And so I guess what I'm getting at here is there's just so many layers that, as you rightly said, we don't have the agility to unpack and really understand. And we need to get comfortable with stepping out of that space and not understanding and not prioritizing ourselves. So that was a bit of a rambling, (laughs) but yeah. (laughs) There was just such an ego, Mm. such an ego, and there's such hubris in the idea that we are the ones who generate knowledge. We are the ones who hold knowledge. We are the ones who are capable of synthesizing knowledge. And extracting knowledge. And extracting knowledge and putting our own lens on it. And you very rightly point out that there's so many different interlocking dynamics. And I I don't want to come off as like, oversimplifying the problem because I understand it's a complicated problem. I don't think I'm a genius that's like come up with some solution. Well, there we go. Everyone <laughs> hold on to your hats. We're about to get a solution. Turn it upside down. Who's your biggest stakeholder? Your biggest stakeholder are your rights holders. That's it. So everything flows from them, what they need, what they want to tell you, the metrics they think you should use to measure it. And the problem for me, the biggest blockage is time. We always wait. How many consultancies have we done where they're like, cool, we want you to evaluate this four, you know, four year long project and we just need it done like two weeks. It's psychotic because Time feels for me the biggest barrier in those conversations, because if you planned ahead, you can have a more meaningful conversation. Your rights holders, your key stakeholders can help you to understand and frame it in a way that's for them. Right. They want to feed back to you. People want to talk about the things that they're experiencing. I think that's like a human thing. That's why there's like 4 million podcasts in the world because people want to talk about shit, (laughs) including us. People will share with you, but you need to make the conditions. What you said before really resonates here is you need to make the environment one that's designed by them. That's by those people. If you want to hear from me and you want my ultimate truth, let me design a process for that to happen. Let me give you the exact right conditions for me to be comfortable. Like think about when we're doing this podcast, right? The lighting's got to be right. I have to have just the right amount of coffee, sometimes (laughs) red wine, before we can do it. I have to be in a very specific space to be able to talk about things because that's, you know, sometimes we're just not in the mood to chat, right? Absolutely. And I think that that's a bit that we, we miss is we don't make the conditions optimal for the people whose knowledge we're trying to draw from. And then we throw another lens on it of like, for us as external people, throw our interpretations of what, you know, there's a ton of research on like cross language research and how so much is lost, so much nuance is lost. And that's a real shame because if you're asking somebody to sit down with you 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half and share their experiences with you, the complexity of their experience, even if you're distilling that through it, through translation, through interpretation, you're still missing something. Absolutely. I think there's two other things echoing from what you're saying and not only time to deliver an evaluation or speak to rights holders, but also the time that they have when 15 organizations are like, we need to talk to you. There's been over the past 10 years, I'm sure longer, such an uncoordinated extraction of knowledge 
And behind all of that is an assumption that the knowledge doesn't exist. Like we as a sector have a real problem with this idea that, oh, that we need new knowledge, that knowledge is not there. Therefore, we need to go and find it. When it probably does exist, you just need to look for it. Someone probably did a survey about it 10 years ago and it's probably sitting in a file. Yes, maybe things have changed, COVID, things have been updated, but there's a foundational piece there that I'm sure can be built on in a much more effective way. And all your partners in country and or other organizations in country probably already have some knowledge you can use. You're getting me fired up now. You're getting (laughs) me fired up. Because here's where I would differ. I will diverge a little bit from what you said. I agree that the knowledge probably exists, but publication bias is real. And we as a sector are freaked out about airing our failures. We're really bad at it. And it really scares us. Why? Because we're not going to get the money. (laughs) That's why. You know, you and I have had evaluations get put on the shelf and not get put in the public domain because what we found was critical of the organization. Because people don't want, they're afraid to say when they fucked up. And so to a certain extent, I agree with you that knowledge exists. We're just really bad at looking for it. And I think that has to do with saturation rates. I think that has to do with in a whole universe of knowledge, trying to find that and use it is really, really hard. I get that. Do a basic Google search and a thousand things will come up. Going through that, sifting through that, figuring out how to analyze that is really hard. I mean, we do that for a living in terms of doing a meta-analysis on loads of documents. So at JROMI podcast. But the other component of that, the other side of that is that people don't say when something's not going well. And so you may have some gaps in your information because organizations, if stuff's not going well, There is a reluctance to say when things aren't going well. And so the knowledge that you're pulling from is all the rosy stuff that worked. And oh, look at what worked here and look at what worked in this context. But you're missing a huge component of stuff that may not have worked because people were afraid to say that they fucked something up. That's a massive hole in our knowledge. Yeah, definitely. And I think taking it down to programming and responding to crisis You know, there's a degree of needing information quickly. There's a degree of not really giving space to um, rights holders or partners to share things that haven't worked because there needs to be a quick response. There needs to be something that happens fast to deal with the situation. So I think in some instances, again, it speaks to time, the ability to understand things quickly. And there's also a power dynamic in partners and rights holders feeling comfortable saying to a large organization, this didn't work because then what if they don't come back? So there is a real dynamic in feeling that rights holders and partners can say that there's a failure. The fear of backlash is real, is really real. And you and I see that in our work and we really try to reinforce the idea that we're independent. This is confidential. It's anonymous by design. You can share with us. We try to build rapport in the, you know, as much as we can do in the time that we have, the time that we're given. So note, if you are trying to get an evaluation done, make sure there's time for it. But still, you know, people understand that we are being paid by these organizations, by organizations who provide services. And if you're blind to the dynamic that exists in that, you're a damn fool. (laughs) Because it exists. It exists. And so the ability to feed back hard stuff. I'm a salty millennial, so I feel like I have a lot of space to feedback, but it's hard. Maybe we ought to then come back to, okay, so we've talked a lot about 
the power structures across knowledge at different levels, how that manifests across the not-for-profit sector. But what can people do about this? We're not really offering solutions because there probably aren't many out there. If you've got a solution, drop the line. What can people do about this? How can people start to address the power that exists in knowledge and the prioritization of knowledge? I really appreciate the fact that you seamlessly shifted on to a new topic because you could see the fire in my eyes wanting <laughs> to spend another seven hours I mean, on this topic alone. I don't know how long our listeners have for this one. So in, in the interest of our beautiful listeners. Right. First, anything that you're trying to do that requires you understanding how people feel about their lives, their experiences, the programming that you're doing, give it the time it needs. Give it the space it needs. Respect that time. You cannot expect people to just drop all their shit and like give your person an hour of their life and they get nothing back from that. You just can't. There's a really interesting article that I'm going to drop into the show notes, but there's a really interesting article about the position that international consultants put consultants who are in the countries where the research is being conducted about how that dynamic really puts those people in uncomfortable positions because they live in the communities in which they're doing the research. So all the compressed timeframes, all the stupid ass questions that are being asked, all of that stuff then puts that person who you've contracted in a really uncomfortable position because they're asking crazy wild questions that aren't connected to really trying to understand a person's experience. So give it time. Make sure that you have, you know, when your shit is going to end, like just plan it in the beginning. Give yourself a good year to make sure that you're setting up the structures. You know, it's happening. You know, it's happening. And if not, you should be doing it as a routine thing anyways. So just plan it. Anytime you're trying to draw knowledge from the people who you serve, give it the space and time so that you can make it work for them. Not for you, not for your two week window. It's not for you. At the end of the day, it's for them. I don't care if you're giving it to a donor. I don't care who you're giving that final product to. It's not for them. It's for your rights holders. So make that whole process work for them. And the starting point of that is to ask them. Shocker. Ask them what works. Ask them what timeframes. When are you the least busy? Who needs to be in the space? Who do I need to talk to first? Just ask. What say you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just ask. (laughs) It's something that I've come across recently in the evaluation space. And I'm sad to say recently because I should have found this before is in terms of how knowledge is framed when coming from evaluations, we put it often in frameworks that are developed by big organizations in Europe or in America. And more recently, I came across a framework called, and I'm going to read this out, it's Made in Africa Evaluation Concept by Bagali Chililisa, who's from the University of Botswana. And this entire evaluation framework is built on the values or the African values of Ubuntu. And that means I am because we are. And these values are about working collaboration, about assessing who you are based on everything around you. And so this entire framework is based on values outside of Europe and the USA, which then means the knowledge is built into values that people are familiar with. And so this for me is just a really good example of decentering ourselves, decentering our knowledge, our frameworks, the way we collect data and putting it in something that we have to feel less comfortable with. The values of Ubuntu, I am not familiar with, you know, have worked with frameworks in the UK and in Europe. 
And I should be okay with that. This is a framework that I don't need to know inside out. And actually I should just be comfortable with not knowing. And so these frameworks and putting these at the top of our list and how we operate, I think are really important. So my advice would be to go and find those frameworks. I lovingly disagree. (laughs) I think the framework, the second you try to apply any kind of framework, you're assuming that there's generalizability for all of the people that you're trying to lay that framework on top of. I'm just going to have to disagree with you on this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Can you explain more? Even if there's cultural relevance to it, it may not fit everybody. So for me, I think destroy all frameworks. But we know that's not going to happen. Yeah, but this is about transformative change. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to dismantle the system. Get rid of all of the frameworks and look at individuals. And it's harder and it takes time and it takes a lot of work and a lot of investment. If you're trying to extract something as precious as a person's knowledge, their experiences, the history, I just don't think frameworks, any framework, regardless of where it's derived from, has the capacity to do it. Because when we start talking about like nuance and language, we have to also talk about nuance and experience and the way that people describe things. I'm just not confident that any kind of a framework, it's still too rigid to capture. And the creation of a framework in and of itself will have its own power dynamics that exist through it, right? Like there will be a history and a legacy and a structure that is developed through a power lens that maybe that's still, still insufficient. So there's no answer there. (laughs) But I agree. Like the rigidity of frameworks is not the way to go, but I think the existence of evaluation frameworks is not going to go away. And currently we have one that's led by the OECD. And so I think that an incremental change is to start to dismantle that one. So maybe this is one step in the direction to saying we don't need these altogether. And the closeness in which this situated in values outside of Europe, I think, is unfortunately something a bit different. So I think on the scale of one to 10, we're not going to go from one to 10. We've actually got to go one to two. So two Get is out of this podcast space. right now. <laughs> so two <laughs> is the space in which we take ourselves out of those Europe-centric frameworks and look at what else is existing out there. So you're trying to use the tools of the master to dismantle his house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. I am happy for incremental shifts if the incremental shift is decentralizing Europe and American centric frameworks. I reluctantly (laughs) accept that. But I think like the end goal is, yes, we don't need frameworks. We need to adapt to the needs and the requests of rights holders in terms of how they want to share their knowledge. But that's just going to take time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. So I accept that it's going to take time. And yeah, I I guess I was hoping that a podcast by two consultants would just destabilize things so substantially that tomorrow there'd be change. How sad. (laughs) No, not sad. It's a journey. (laughs) It's the journey that counts, not the destination. Fine, whatever. Okay, so those are a couple of things that people can do or that organizations can think about is giving time, giving space, getting rid of frameworks in favor of more contextually specific, contextually appropriate frameworks. There's a symmetry in three things. Although I feel like we're missing something. What are we missing? I don't know. You said something before about just like being comfortable, not knowing and being comfortable getting out of the way. 
And I think there's a bigger conversation about why that's so hard for organizations to get out of the way, why it's so hard for us to think that anytime you've gone into an organization and somebody's like, oh, there needs to be a template for this. If you've ever thought that and the organization is more than 48 hours old, you're not the only one who thought that. There will be a template for it. I think this idea that we are the spark, we are the ones that have this genius idea that's come out of whatever. I think, again, it comes back to our ego and that like we're the only ones who hold information, who hold knowledge, who can come up with ideas. As a sector, we just need to get out of the way of that. What you said before about getting comfortable not knowing or getting comfortable in our discomfort and in decentering ourselves and in trying to build bridges that communicate what needs to be communicated by the people who are communicating, the people we want to hear from. Because I don't believe that organizations are just like, yeah, we just want to do a sort of superficial thing. I think that they think they're actually trying to get deep knowledge from people, but they're not creating the right, you know, it's not optimal conditions for that to happen. And so I think that we just need to take that advocacy piece that you were talking about before. And so if the international organization is that middle piece, that bridge between rights holders and donors, I think that the other piece that we need to do is just get really comfortable telling donors exactly as you said before, this is how our rights holders, the rights holders we support and that we serve want to communicate. So if you're looking for this thing, it's going to be hard to synthesize that because it's synthesized through the lens of our experience and our expectations or whatever. So I think there just needs to be some advocating and some support around how international organizations really safeguard the space for rights holders to reflect and to learn and be comfortable that they may have to challenge their donors on what the expectations are. Yeah. Well, it's kind of what I said before about the assumption that knowledge doesn't exist because in knowledge is skills. So there's an assumption that I need to design that template because the skills don't exist elsewhere to design that template. So exactly what you're saying. And then if I do find the skills exist elsewhere, saying I don't need to be the one who creates that template and then being comfortable with the time it might take for someone else to create it, to get it into a format that suits them because NGOs operate in a time span of we need it now, let's go, or someone else, our donor needs it now. So slowing down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was a really like clunky. (laughs) Just everybody slow down. And think about what you're actually trying to achieve and who you're achieving it for, donors included. You know, not everyone operates on NGO time or London time. Thank God. (laughs) As a chronic planner, as somebody who literally plans out outfits for holidays to maximize the space I have in my luggage. NGO time is horrible. It's horrifying. (laughs) But we've explored this as well in our evaluation with Amnesty International and that the pace in which organizations move might not be accommodating everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. That this idea of like now, 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 I need to do this thing now. I need to do this. We are guilty of that as well because we rush through things. And obviously we spend a lot of time thinking about ethics and being participatory. But when you compress the time frame so that you've got consultants who are coming in, they've got two weeks to turn a whole thing around. Voices get missed. Nuance gets missed. 
And so if you're using that work as a well of knowledge, as a way of making decisions, there are holes in that. There are holes in that because it's not been given the space that it needs and it's not given the priority. I think that's what really bothers me about this is because it feels like it's always an afterthought. Like, oh, now it's time for us to hear from rights holders. It's always an afterthought. Why is it like that? Do we have time? Answer me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> me? <laughs> Why, Lauren? I always get the hard one. Why? <laughs> everything we've just said, everything we've just talked about and the blockages and the barriers are the why. It's going to unfortunately take a mind shift to say, I need to think of something to do. I need to speak to five other people or I'll bring them into a co-creating space. Like there's a mind shift. There's an ego piece in there, as you rightly said, like I value my knowledge and expertise more. Therefore, I should create this template. It's going to take a mind shift because we just have terribly different expectations of ourselves <laughs> and our partners or people that we work with in other contexts. To summarize, somebody else already thought of that template. <laughs> so dig through the repository because it's there. You haven't given enough time to do the thing that you think you want to do. Give it more time. Make sure that thing that you want to do is fit for purpose, is something that is suitable, appropriate, and fits the people who are interacting in that space. And to do that, you need to ask them. That's so, a great summary. So that's a summary. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. What if I said no? And I just played the... That would be rude. <laughs> <laughs> so Tia, whose knowledge counts? Everybody's knowledge counts. All knowledge matters. <laughs> It does, though. <laughs> it does. It all fits into a big picture. Everybody's knowledge counts. It's just about how you prioritize that knowledge. And it goes back to what you said about the side by side thing. Too often we think, OK, quick story. We were doing a, an interview and they were like, oh, we haven't seen that you've like put in any time for to come and do in-country data collection. Like, well, no, we don't need to because you have people with knowledge in that country who know what they're doing, who are experts and who would be better suited to do it than us because they know the context deeply because they live it. Like, you don't need us. And it was a bit of a hard, it was a bit of an awkward kind of conversation to have about why it's important to think about and prioritize people who have lived experiences as very well suited to do the things that they need to do or that you're asking in a terms of reference. I think that we just need to like situate things and accept that our knowledge is a little piece of the picture. And so putting the theoretical and the practical together in the same space, that's where I think engaging in interesting conversations and discussions happen. That's the space where all the ego just needs to get pulled away and stripped away and people can have meaningful dialogue. But at the moment, what we do is we hold the most important things as being, you know, when you ask me the question of whose knowledge counts at the moment, people will say, well, well, you as consultants, because you've got degrees and yada, 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 that's the knowledge that we're looking for. That's the knowledge that they're paying for. When our position has always been, we're a conduit for other people's knowledge. And you need to appreciate that that knowledge that we're surfacing is being filtered through the lens of our bias and through the expectations that you place on us to communicate in a way that you understand. So whose knowledge counts? Everybody's knowledge counts. It's just how we prioritize and balance that 
Okay. Lauren. Whose knowledge counts? Not mine. And that's why you <laughs> listen to an hour of us chatting shit. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm Dia. And I'm Lauren. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.